You're listening to the best goddamn podcast available with your host, Rob Childs. And just like that, we're good to go. So, Sylvie, it's been amazing getting you on here. Um, I know we've kind of talked over the last few months about getting some things together. And your life's crazy. My life's crazy. I'm now half a bionic man. So we finally got it together. So thank you for coming on. I really appreciate this. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. So in uh, in doing some research on you, um, and then we, we just spoke about this, um, you're not the traditional fighter. So a lot of Muay Thai fighters, um, for the people that are listening, um, a lot of people are used to like the American fight records, you know, of like 20 and two, 18 and one, that type of thing. You're trying to get up to the 470 fights. Um, so I needed to kind of get some insight into the mindset of a person that wants that many fights. So why don't we just kind of like rewind it all the way back to uh, to your childhood and kind of where all of this started and where you kind of grew up at. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I'm the youngest of four and I'm the only daughter. So I have three older brothers. And uh, I think it's like very much part of my or story to be the little one trying to like keep up with the boys, basically. Um, and so I, I grew up very like outdoorsy, you know, like um, we we lived in a kind of area where we were outdoors most of the time and, uh, you know, just kind of like entertaining ourselves. So I think I was a very active kid. Um, I grew up playing soccer and, um, you know, dabbling in things like gymnastics and stuff like that. But I had never done any kind of like contact sport at all. Um, and I think that my brothers and maybe even my parents, because I'm the only daughter, they really wanted me to be a lot more girly than I ended up being. So I was kind of encouraged to do things that were more like uh, ballet or, um, you know, uh, dance, things like this that just sure that wasn't what my brothers were doing. So I wasn't super into it. Um, and I think that maybe the first time I had even tried doing something like, you know, cardio kickboxing or whatever the kinds of things you find in America are, I think I was in college the first time I ever like really kicked something <laughs> with, uh -huh. with that kind of, um, you know, effort. Uh, and I guess it was kind of okay, but it, it wasn't really until, um, it wasn't really until I had moved in with now my husband, but I graduated from college and I moved in uh, with my husband and he was making me watch all of these martial arts movies, like all these Kung Fu movies. He had this amazing collection and you kind of have to have either like, um, some kind of orientation towards, you know, martial arts movies <laughs> or be, right. have some kind of context. And I just didn't. So I was really, uh, I think I made it through maybe like six or seven of them before I was trying to like tap out. <laughs> and he said, I just had to watch one more. Cause it was not like anything I'd ever seen before. And so I was like, all right, we can do one more. And uh, he had me watch Ong Bak with Tony Ja, And it was the first time I'd ever seen Muay Thai. And um, I was just really enamored by the movements. It's it's not really like ring Muay Thai. It's kind of Baran type of stuff. Okay. Um, but it was the first time that I saw anything like a martial art that I really wanted to do. 
And it actually wasn't until I moved to Thailand that I was like, oh shit, kickboxer was supposed to be Muay Thai in Thailand. <laughs> it's just Van Damme doing the splits all over the place. So <laughs> I think, <laughs> yeah. I, think uh, I thought I'd seen Muay Thai, but I had not, I guess is the way to say that. So, and how old are you when you, you first go over there? Uh, the first time we came to Thailand, I was, I think, 25 or 26. Um, oh, wow. But I started Muay Thai at, at 24. Um, that was the first time I'd ever seen it. And we, we were living in New York at the time, and we were just trying to find someone who could teach me. Sure. And the first place we found was one of these places that I think people are pretty familiar with. It's like a strip mall that's basically teaching Taekwondo, but then they also throw some elbows and put Muay Thai on the window kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I went, I think I, I went to maybe like a month of classes or something. And I was just like, this is not uh, igniting in me the excitement I had at watching this movie. Like the movements that I saw and what I'm doing here just really don't feel like they're anywhere near each other. Right. And um, just by chance, we found Master K, who at the time was like a 70 year old Thai man uh, teaching people one-on-one -on -one out of his basement in New Jersey. So it was an hour drive in each direction to go train with him. But within, you know, the first session of training with Master K, I was like, this is it. This is, this is what I was looking at. And I was mm -hmm. really, um, it was so hard, <laughs> very unnatural, um, and challenging, but I really loved it. And then, uh, Master K had to have, uh, angioplasty, um, for his heart. And it was that experience of like actually just facing his mortality that uh, was the impetus for me and Kevin to come out to Thailand for the first time in uh, in 2010. Yeah, that's it's really crazy to me. Um, a couple things. So first off, I went through your uh, your Patreon a little bit, and so mm -hmm. that you have like some professional videos up of like you know classic fighter type things, and uh, you actually have my coach, uh, Métis Jepadik. He's oh. on is is one yeah. of like the things, and uh, so I, I completely understand what you're saying about there's a difference in taking like a cardio kickboxing class and then going and training with a real tie, you know, yeah. that'll, that'll teach you things. He has uh, Métis walks around with this little yellow wiffle ball bat, and oh. <laughs> and if you're not like his his stance is a little weird, to where both feet are forward, you know, they're always yeah. facing forward, body's very square. And so if your back foot ever turns, he just kind of lets you lets you know real quick on the hamstring, you know, like kind of fix that thing. Um, and then the second thing is that um, quite a few of my listeners are pretty, pretty into Muay Thai. But for the people that are not, for you to start Muay Thai at 25 or 24, sorry, mm -hmm. and move over to Thailand at 25 at that point, most ties would have already had 200 fights um so you're kind of a little bit late in the game um same as same thing with kevin ross you know he didn't mm -hmm. start till he was in his like mid-20s and he went on to be a savage <laughs> so it's just i think it's it's weird like the comparisons and cultures to where americans we can start something later but when it comes to muay thai they start at like three or four sometimes um, sometimes so, yeah yeah so with you moving over did you find any like resistance or anything like that and like wanting to like pick a gym start training and get your team and coaches and everything around um everything about me is wrong 
<laughs> everything about me is wrong um Elaborate maybe maybe if I were like um a heavier person that would be one more thing that they would have had a problem with me I'm lucky that I'm kind of small mm -hmm. um and so there's this kind of like okay well you know we can work with this your athletic kind of thing but um being the age that I was at, uh, being a Westerner, being a woman, uh, wanting to fight as much as I wanted to fight, none of these things had any map. Like none of these made sense to uh, the people that I that I was coming to with this dream when I came to Thailand to, um, initially when we came out uh, in 2010, I just wanted to fight. Like I just wanted to train and fight. And yeah. uh, my aim was not a lot of fights. I think I really just wanted to try fighting once I'd had one fight in America. So this would have been, you know, my second fight ever was in Thailand. And uh, we stayed for 10 weeks and I ended up fighting three times. Um, and I was supposed to fight four, but one of my fights was canceled because there was a coup <laughs> happening <laughs> at the time. Um, and it was at that time of, of just coming and seeing how Muay Thai is done in Thailand, not only the training, but also the fighting and it's so different from the West in that uh, in America, everything is very built up. You know, people have like a, you know, two month training camp and you have this kind of like build up and then uh, this whole big come down afterwards and you have to wait forever until you can fight again. And your ego is so like enmeshed in whether you win or lose your fight because they're just so spread apart. Like you're just not going to get mm -hmm. as much experience. And when I came to Thailand, I kind of compared it to when I was a kid playing soccer. We played every weekend. Like, you don't get that bent out of shape. Like, losing sucks, but you don't get that bent out of shape when you're just going to be doing it more often. It's just kind of all about the experience. So um, in that first trip out in 2010, uh, I was climbing back into the truck, I think, after my first fight um, in Thailand. And I said to Andy, who was um, Canadian, and he, he owned the camp, Lana Muay Thai, that I was training at. I said, I want 50 fights. And he kind of was shocked for a second and he just went, well, okay. <laughs> like get in the truck kind of thing. So there was resistance in the sense of like what I am in not being a young Thai boy, basically. But there was also incredible acceptance of, of what I wanted, despite it being so completely radical. Like when I showed that I was willing to fight and keep fighting and like okay, I wasn't hurt in that one. Let's go again in three days, 11 days, that kind of thing. When we moved out here, um, the ties who were training me were like, okay, like, you know, she's proving that she can do it. So we'll just keep doing it rather than them, you know, shaking a finger at me and saying that it's not something that can be done. Yeah. So what you, what you're doing is amazing. Um, I love when people find something that kind of triggers them on, turns them on and they follow that path just to see where it leads, even if it's not to like, billions of dollars or whatever you know like just to be able to go do the thing that turned you on is is an amazing uh feat that that those are the people that i want to speak to um i'm always really curious about the encompassing people in your life though so you're from america you have your american family you have your american husband you move to thailand how are they handling all this you know out of nowhere you're just like hey i'm leaving <laughs> you know <laughs> I'm going to go be a pro fighter in Thailand. You know, like, how does that conversation kind of come up and, and affect your day-to-day -day life? Yeah. Um, again, that one's a little bit of a blend. Like, um, there's a bit of a record scratch, for sure, at uh, people who grew up with me or uh, my family being like, oh, Sully's going to move to Thailand and become a professional Muay Thai fighter. That, like, they weren't, you know, 
nobody would have guessed this about me ever growing up. This is not something that anyone, including myself, would have like anticipated. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, you know, my family is um, we're tight in that, like we're we're very uh, important to each other, but we're not actually in proximity with each other. So uh, my three brothers are kind of spread out around the you know Colorado Arizona area. Um, I was living all the way out in New York, so I wasn't near my family already. Um, and I wasn't like going home often for, for holidays and stuff like that. So the difference between me being on a different coast and me being on another continent um, is, you know, kind of more of a conceptual one than, than an actual okay. like practical one. Yeah. Um, my brothers, two of my brothers were present at my very first fight in Virginia uh, in America. And um, so that was cool. That was like having support straight away. And uh, my parents have come to see me fight uh, both in America and visiting in Thailand. So I would say that there's like a mixed bag in terms of like no parents or brothers are going to be stoked about watching their sister get, you know, kicked in the face yeah. or anything like that. But they one, they know how important it is to me. But also my dad was really happy uh when he came to master k's basement one time watching me train and he was like i really changed my mind about how i felt about your training he said at first i just kind of thought you were just going to get beat up but seeing you actually like give back and defend yourself and kind of have these uh confidence and and um, power and stuff yourself it really filled my dad with kind of a pride and confidence that he had not had when he was just thinking about it uh, yeah. but actually seeing it he he got into it and now he kind of like brags about me to his friends <laughs> like, yeah, he doesn't awesome. have to worry about his daughter and stuff yeah let's i want to dive into that really quick and then we can move on uh you said something about um confidence and mm -hmm. and for me i i started jujitsu like right around the time where i started this podcast i was going through some other medical things uh, about three years ago it was like a cancer related thing and i used mm -hmm. jujitsu as like my way out you know of like mm -hmm. i don't care what my body feels like going to do this you know it required a ton of discipline and, and everything like that um so what are you doing for discipline to be able to continue doing what you're doing and going down that path because there's days and i know from personal experience you may not be able to walk correctly for a couple mm -hmm. days because you caught like a leg kick and sparring that was a little too hard or you didn't check it mm -hmm. or you know whatever it is how how are you able to keep your your confidence and your discipline kind of moving forward when you aren't a Thai guy, you know, you aren't mm. like the traditional, what they're expecting. I think that there's a, a misconception and it's a fair one. I think it, when you look at people who are not you and you look at people who are doing things that seem kind of um, remarkable, a lot of times you only really see one side of the coin at a time. So you're either seeing heads or tails and you don't really, note that it's the same coin kind of thing sure and so uh in just the way that when we watch you know like a one of these marvel movies like a comic book movie or something these superheroes have these superpowers but they're also super tormented people like they're very um they're very weighted by mm. their capacities and and they're not being normal and things like this so i'm not confident all the time and I think that a lot of the times that when I'm able to like push myself when I'm hurt when I can't um 
when I can't really feel like I'm like stoked to go to the gym or something like that, it's actually using weaknesses that I have that gets me there. Um, and it sounds really dark, but it is like self-hatred <laughs> and uh, being critical and being afraid of um, shame and things like that. That actually can motivate you to get you to a place that like now you can kind of alchemy, bring it into something that's a little bit more positive. But it's interesting that with um, your health conditions, working with jujitsu, one of the more beautiful that don't really understand is that it's such a patient sport. And yeah. so if you're, if you're um, physicality, when you're sick, when you have to like teach yourself to be really patient, that's taking a weakness and, and having a kind of like um, a realization out of it or like a, a practice out of it. So I think that some of the things that have uh, improved me um, both as a fighter and as a person have not been like, I'm super confident. I'm super motivated. It's actually right. been the opposite of that. Yeah. That that's not uncommon for me to hear, to be honest. Mm. I, I've heard kind of like both ends of the spectrum. Um, some people find that, you know, after their first day in class of, of Muay Thai Jiu Jitsu, whatever it is, you know, they walk out with like this bravado like they can finally handle themselves type thing you know it's after the first day but um and then that kind of gets beaten down you know after mm -hmm. rounds of rolling or sparring or whatever it is and that kind of goes away but it's the discipline to keep you coming back that then grows yeah. your confidence um i guess my question for you is is that easy to hold on to um because i know i have not been over and trained in thailand um, I have quite a few friends that have um, my brother's gone over and it doesn't seem like there's too many female fighters comparatively to to the men. Um, so do you feel like you've been you've been able to like hold that confidence? And yeah, I, I think I kind of went there with that. Um, it's. I don't know that it's necessarily a confidence in the sense of like self-esteem, but it's a confidence in the sense of like, I have security and that I can do something. So even if I, even if I'm struggling, like, even if it's not my best day, I can get through it. Like I can, mm -hmm. I can push through that thing. And I've pretty consistently been the only woman training in any of the gyms that I've, that I've been in, in the 11 years now that we've been in Thailand. Um, sometimes there are other women at the gym, but like not consistently. Right. Um, and so, like I was saying about how I was always trying to like keep up with the boys when I was younger, when I was the only girl in the smallest. So there were all these reasons why I didn't really like fit in with the boys. Um, in my gyms, because I work so hard, I end up being the kind of pace horse that my trainers compare the boys to. So instead of like Sylvie, keep up with the boys, they're like, boys, Sylvie's doing it. You guys better keep up with her because she's a girl and you should be doing better and all this different type of stuff. So it's it's kind of a backhanded compliment in a way <laughs> to have this constant like yeah. or a girl kind of thing. Um, but also, if you know, if you talk to Meti about how he came up in Muay Thai, even as a Thai boy, um, there's really like when you're actually in the machine, when you're in the kind of slow cooker of a gym that you're just doing the work all the time, there isn't as much thought about what your choice is like there's not as much waking up and being like am I going to train today you just go that's like what you do every day right. so people who are going after work or on the weekends 
they have this slight disadvantage in that it's a choice all the time. It's this kind of like, is this going to be my outlet? Do I have the energy to do it? When it's your job, when it's what you do, when it's what you've like plugged yourself into this machine, that's the only thing the machine makes. So, you know, every day you're um, getting up and doing the thing and it's not so much a like, am I going to do it or am I not? It's kind of like, you just go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You got the road work is probably one of the most important things in Muay Thai. I mm -hmm. hate sparring and being tired. It just feels like everything <laughs> weighs 10 times more than it should. Your brain's not clicking correctly. It's yeah. yeah. So I definitely understand the the road work and getting out and getting after it and everything portion of it. Um, <clears throat> kind of trying to figure out where I wanted to take this next. because There's so many different questions that I have, especially for somebody that's wanting to achieve something so great. You know, the, the 470 fights it's or 472 or where, where exactly are you at now in that hunt? You're in the so, 200, I believe, um, I'm going to have my 277th fight next month if everything goes as, you know, if it doesn't get canceled or something. So I'm at 276 sure. out of the um, 471. And the reason the reason I hit on 471 is that the highest recorded, like someone who actually has a record of every single one of their fights, whether it's in print, a newspaper, some kind of bill, um, is Len Wickwar. And he was a boxer, like a, a Western boxer in uh, England in like the 20s and 30s. Okay. Um, and so I want to I want to match his record and beat it. So I'm like honoring his record and then stepping past it a little bit. And I am like him in that every single one of my fights is recorded. It's not a like guesstimate. It's not a like, oh, approximately like every single one has a record. Mm -hmm. That Yeah, that's insane. Four over 400 fights. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, yeah, it's, well, it's like, a stupid number, but yeah. It's, well, it's so cool. here's the thing. Here's the thing with that I would say is the largest difference between what you're doing and what he's doing, or what he did. He's probably wearing ten to sixteen ounce gloves and has a big mouth guard in. You're fucking your feet up after every fight. It is hard to walk you know, mm -hmm. with leg kicks and getting checked and everything. So your recovery time has to be a lot longer than his is. Um, I mean, you don't think so? Or... Um, for, for about eight years, I was fighting like every 11 days. So I would sometimes have six fights in a month. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's one of these things where like, you're just never going to be recovered before the next fight. And people have asked me about this because they're like, this is crazy. Like it, it takes, you know, they're saying it takes them a long time to get back to normal. So why am I fighting again? And I kind of always felt myself. I'm like, I hurt anyway. Like it hurts anyway. So if you get back in the ring, you're not going to be like double hurt. Like <laughs> it already hurts. So it's kind yeah. of like a buy one, get one kind of thing. So if I'm fighting like every three days or something, all that stuff that hurts is going to hurt anyway. So you can hurt on the couch at home or you can hurt in the ring with adrenaline and it kind of like numbs it for a little bit and maybe you pick up you know a few more a few more injuries yeah. in that one um but i think that i think that there's a difference between how you know people in the west especially because we watch fighters on tv right so if you watch like a ufc fighter they fight like once every six months or something mm -hmm. and there's a lot of like promotional stuff and it has to be this kind of like everything's perfect because people will be blamed if there's any kind of problem and you have to like do 
all of the things around the fight that are not fighting. Like there's a whole big circus that goes around fighting that's not the fight. Yeah. Uh, in Thailand, it's not like that. In Thailand, they don't even like read the scores unless it's an important fight on TV kind of thing. So like you basically get your hand raised and get out and the next fight is coming in. It's this very like high turnover kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So in terms of um, recovery or like what it what it feels like to recover is that fighting is just part of training. Like they're this kind of like, um, you know, snake eating its tail kind of thing. They just constantly move together rather than it being like you train for this amount of time so that you can have one fight and then you take two months off or something sure. like this like it's just a different it's a different rhythm i guess is is how i would say it yeah, yeah yeah okay so would you be able to explain to more of like the western audience um kind of how the promotion is different from like say because uh one championship they're doing muay thai fights um, and how that's kind of different from like the Lumpini, Rajamadan, you know, stadiums and stuff like that. How how does that differ to the extremes, I guess? Yeah. So Muay Thai in Thailand is in the dirt. Like it's it's everywhere. Muay Thai is just it's part of the fabric of Thailand. Um, you know, you get in a taxi, your taxi driver for sure was a Muay Thai fighter at some time some guy you're talking to at the market is a gambler. Like it's just, it's everywhere. So there are different um, venues and different degrees of fighting. The majority of fighting in Thailand is provincial, which means it's not in Bangkok. It's like happening out in the provinces. They're in like temporary rings that they put up um, at kind of like fairs, I guess. Um, Like if you can think of like county fairs in America, it's a little bit like that. So they just put them up like on the, on the uh, temple grounds in order to kind of like have a festival, raise money. It's very social kind of thing. And these fights are all the time. They're everywhere. Um, they start at, at like 8 PM when it starts to get cooler and they'll have like 20 bouts on them. They go really late into the night wow. and there's a lot of gambling and they'll have, you know, little five-year-old kids up to like, you know, um, pretty, pretty well-known names all just kind of going through. That's what most of the Muay Thai in Thailand is like. So if you get on that circuit, you're fighting all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also what I would call like tourism Muay Thai. And so that's what you would find at the stadia in like Phuket and Chiang Mai. And so this is where most people, like you said, your brother comes out to Thailand. Most people who come as tourists and we do our training and we want to have a fight, most people are going to be fighting at that kind of situation. So that's also other tourists buying tickets to watch these fights. And it does have, you know, uh, local Thai people on these shows all the time, but that's where you're going to see more of the kind of like Western Thai matchup um, situations. And those are, you know, most days of the week kind of thing. Okay. Um, And then Bangkok is kind of the, like, the ceiling. That's like where everyone wants to go because there's more... um, esteem to it you have to kind of like graduate to get into Bangkok historically it's not as hard now as it used to be Um, but it used to be you would become like a champion in your province and then you would get sent to Bangkok and have to start at the bottom of the ladder again and work your way up but now Bangkok is a little bit more um, open it's a little bit more porous so people like come and go from the provinces but those are the fights that you'd be more familiar with watching on tv that's the Lumpani and Rajadamner and one championship uh, super champ 
Um, the three round entertainment fights that are becoming more popular now, those are kind of happening in Bangkok. And those, those are a little bit more um, regulated, I would say. So if you're Thai and you're fighting in Bangkok, you have to have a book, a fighter's book, and they write your fights in it. They record every single one. And so legally, you have to have 21 days break between each of your fights in Bangkok. But wow. fighters get around this all the time by fighting in Bangkok, and then you don't have to record any fights in your book if you go fight in Asan, you know, so you just kind of like go in and out. But in Bangkok, if you're on that circuit with the like um, promoters who pay better and who promote you and actually put you on TV, those ones are a little bit more um, regulated, farther apart. Those names are bigger. There's more money uh, on the fight. So there's a lot more um, risk, I guess, if you lose that kind of yeah. thing. Okay. So can you walk me through your first walkout? In Thailand? I'm yeah yeah because it's it's got to be different than you know walking out anywhere else it's it's, it's their national sport you know it's, yeah like, it's in the dirt it's literally built around the so yeah what's that your first walkout like okay so it was my second fight ever um my first fight in thailand and so i in my first fight in america i'd worn shin pads and headgear Okay. Um, and so I'd never even sparred or anything without shin guards. And so my huge fear of going and fighting in Thailand was fighting without shin guards because, you know, clashing shins in training hurts so oh, bad. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's going to be terrible. And um, one of the reasons when we first came out to Thailand on our first visit, one of the reasons we went to Chiang Mai and chose Lana Muay Thai as a camp is because there was a Canadian woman also named Sylvie who's also like a hundred pounds and she had been fighting out of that gym. So I knew that if I went there, I would at least have opportunities because she had, she had done it. So Sylvie was in my corner and she has all this experience and she's so calm. Like she's giving me my pre-fight massage and she's just talking to people and like so relaxed. And uh, I'm just this ball of nerves, <laughs> like the way that, that we like to be in the West. We love to be so nervous before our fights and like putting, all this importance on the outcome and and trying to remember my Ram Moy and all of these things. And um, the, the way these stadia are set up in these tourist spots, so where I was fighting was this tourism Muay Thai for my first fight, um, it's all bars. So the ring is at the center and then it's just a bunch of bars around the outside. So the one next to where we were uh, getting ready is um, like a ladyboy bar, like a katoy bar. Okay. And so it's a bunch of trans women singing karaoke songs <laughs> as I'm like getting ready for my fight. Like they're having a party. And then the bar that we were getting ready at has a pool table and the pool table has direct lighting. So the fight before mine, the fighter got cut and he gets out of the ring and they put him on the pool table to stitch him up. And that's like, okay, Sylvie, go time. This guy's <laughs> getting stitched. Now it's time for you to go walk out. <laughs> into the fight and there's no like there's no catwalk there's no like you know big uh there's no big thing about walking out it's not a stage you actually just walk through the audience you walk through people to get to your corner and then you get up in there and they start playing um up in Chiang Mai for every western fight they always play final countdown so my walkout song was final countdown for like two years <laughs> it's the only one they play okay uh, that's a little weird and, but all right yeah, I was just um I was just in this like 
haze, you know, it's like lights and people and um, the other fighters and the smell of liniment oil and just kind of like uh, trying to fortify myself on my way into the ring. And I don't think that I had complicated thoughts. I didn't have plans about what I was going to do. I was just so afraid of like, how good is this girl that they're putting me up against? Like, I had no idea what to expect. Um, I ended up winning that fight by knockout. I think I need this girl in the head. And it made this sound, it made this like popping sound that made me really sick to my stomach. And I was like, I was really worried about her and nobody else was worried about her. Cause this is just, you know, Tuesday night for yeah. everyone else. And it eventually like became that way for me. But in that first fight, it was like, I'd never, I'd never made that kind of contact with another human body before. Like I, I didn't really spar even before my fights um, for years. Sure. So yeah. So what was it like getting kicked for the first time without shin pads on or kicking somebody? Oh, man, was this it, is... was I, I, like, I've done it. The, the shin, the shin to shin knee to knee is horrible. Um, but the first time you catch a liver kick without a pad on that changes everything immediately. So I'm just yeah. kind of curious what your relationship <laughs> to that was. Um, I did get the shin to shin in that fight. And the amazing thing that I try to relate to people who are worried about their first fights without, you know, shin pads is you don't feel anything. Your adrenaline is going and you don't feel anything while you're fighting. After the fight, it sucks. After the fight, all everything, like 20 minutes after the fight, you start feeling everything in your body and it's really, really painful. Mm -hmm. But in the fight, none of it hurts. I've gotten... I have more than 240 stitches in my head through all of my fights. And I know when I'm cut, I can feel it because it's kind of hot, but I never feel pain from, from cuts. I've had my nose broken. I've broken my hand, my foot, um, you know, tons of stuff that in the ring, I, nothing, I don't care. It's afterwards. That's just the worst. I got, I was fighting this girl and she hit me in the solar plexus with her knee and it just sucked all the air out of me. It was like one of those, you know, alien where they like try to put the alien out through the chamber or whatever, where like all yeah. the air just exited from my lungs and it hurts so bad. And I just, it's like time was standing still. And I was just trying to not show how much I was in danger and it managed to work. Like she did not <laughs> see that I was in so much danger and she kind of backed away from me and I was like able to catch my breath. But it's one of those things where it's like that split second feels like you know, five minutes of not being able to breathe or something. But when you watch it on video, it's literally like a millisecond. Yeah. Yeah. So before your fights, do you have a, uh, like a routine like for, for fight day, like that morning, do you traditionally have a routine or is it just kind of like, this is just what you do at this point? Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you what it was like I may have had one at some point but fucking 270 fights in no yeah, exactly. <laughs> um I kind of uh I was encouraged when I first uh was fighting a lot here that on the day of your fight you're supposed to not do anything like you're supposed to be really relaxed just kind of eat and rest and kind of you know uh maintain as much low energy stuff as you can all day but you fight at night you fight at like nine or ten at night. Mm -hmm. And if you're fighting in the provinces, you're fighting at like two in the morning, which is way past my bedtime for uh, someone who trains all the time. So for me, that doesn't work for me. It doesn't work to just kind of lay around all day. I like to be a little bit active on the days that I fight. Um, 
you know, like walking around or, or kind of getting something done when it gets close ish to the fight, like within, within a couple hours where I'm actually going to the venue, that's when my routine starts. Like that's when I'll start actually getting into a little bit of a groove is just a couple of hours before the fight. Okay. And that's just like, um, I like to imitate my favorite fighter. My favorite fighter is Carhat, and he has this very like chest up, uh, almost like a cowboy swagger way of walking. So when I get to the venue, the way that I pass through the doors to get into any venue is I literally impersonate Carhat's walk as I'm as I'm walking into a place. Yeah. Um. And that's that's like part of my routine of getting ready. Yeah. No. It's I. Uh, one of my buddies, Josh, hit an MMA fight last year. And I traditionally do uh, dietetics, so I work with fighters, help them with their weight cuts and everything, and do it properly instead of just, you know, starving and dehydrating mm -hmm. everybody. Um, so we were getting ready for his fight. He's in the back warming up, and uh, he wanted me to shoot, like, with my camera, some stuff to, to make a little film for, for his uh, YouTube channel for his fighting. And you can see it, you know, like just in filming him, once he gets his gloves on, he starts moving around and then mm. there's just that switch, yeah. you know, and he's, he's no longer my friend, you know, like mm. at that, at that point, you can tell his focus. There's only two people on this planet that can get to him. That's Métis and his jujitsu coach, you know, mm. everybody else is kind of just gone and i'm wondering if if you have that still with that many fights um because it's not very often you get to talk to somebody who's been in over 200 fights you know so yeah. do you still have that tunnel vision type thing or are you able to do the relaxing thing and just walk in oh it's just a tuesday i just got to get through this and then you know like what's your mindset going into something like that there's a there is a kind of point of no return. Like uh, if you've ever been on a roller coaster, you know, when that like thing just kind of clamps down in front of you and you get that kind of like, there is no way I can get off this thing now. Yep. That's what having your hands wraps feels like to me. Like once the hands are wrapped, you're done. Like there's nothing you can do. You can't, um, yeah. you're just stuck. Like this is how you do things. So that's when I get my most kind of like, okay, now we're, now we're on the machine. Now it's time to go. Um, I, definitely in all of my fights have had um being too relaxed like if i'm if i'm too this is just a tuesday i actually come in too low in the fight and i have a hard time getting started um and i've i've definitely suffered in fights for that coming in too low and then there's also the kind of like if i have monkey mind if i'm not focused if i'm kind of like too relaxed in the way that i'm like not focused on what's happening that can also be a problem so it's a little bit of finding this kind of like soft focus rather than being super tunnel vision or being like a little bit scattered. You have to find this kind of like mid range. Um, and for me, it's when I'm actually in the ring and I start my Y crew um, and I, and I bat on my corner three times and I think of my trainers, that's the moment that I feel the most uh, centered. Like that's when I'm most like, this is, mm -hmm. this is focused go time. So I'm already in the ring. By the time uh, my kind of like uh, tunnel tunnel vision comes in, yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, can you hear the crowd? Because I've heard some people can hear everything. They know where <laughs> their parents are. They know where their manager is. Most other <laughs> people, like they don't know what corner they're in. You know, so yeah. what's what kind of 
your spatial capacity? Do you know where you are and where everybody else is? And can you hear things during the fight? Um, that's changed for sure. Uh, when I first moved out here, it was all very disorienting. Um, my Thai, I didn't really speak Thai when I first came out here. So I don't understand announcers. I don't understand the commentary. Um, my, my cornermen would speak broken English to me and they'd tell me what to do. And I would forget it the instant the round started again. <laughs> I had no idea. When you go and fight in the provinces, like out in these festival fights, there's something that was very scary to me originally, but now I actually really love, which is that the gamblers come all the way up to the skirt of the ring. They can touch the ring. There's no gap between the crowd and the ring itself. And so between rounds, people who you don't know, you've never met before, they will come and they will grab your leg and they'll tell you to do something because they're betting on you. Like they're gamblers and they're like, you need to get in there and punch an elbow or knee or grab her or whatever the thing is. And it's very disorienting. When I first got here, I'm like, I didn't know who to listen to. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? Why is he grabbing me? Like which yeah. coach do I listen to? Now um, I can... I can understand Thai, so I can hear the commentary. So during the fight, I can hear what the commentators are saying. And I'm like, oh, interesting. They're talking about how she's backing up too much, or they're saying that I look strong. And so I can actually like feel in real time and hear in real time what's being perceived in the fight. And then um, sometimes I can hear my corner during the fight. Oftentimes I can't. But when I go back to the corner and I listen to them and it's like processing and I'm like, okay, I understand what that is. And I can bring that now into the, into the round with me. But sometimes I just like, I can hear my opponent's corner, but I can't hear my corner. <laughs> it's really <laughs> frustrating. Um, so yeah, it changes. It, it depends on, uh, it depends on what's going on. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you just a couple more questions and then get you out of here. I know already had a long day of training and running and sweating your ass off um <laughs> so i was hoping that you could potentially walk me through the gambling in muay thai because for americans we understand like my bookie.ag and you know like all all of that shit but in thailand it's real like in time you have people mm -hmm. standing next to each other passing money back and forth I've never seen it personally, like I've never been there, but I've, from what I've heard from Métis and some of my friends that have been there, that the gamblers play just as much of a role in some fights as the actual fighters do. Um, mm. So how much truth is there to that? And I guess, can Muay Thai exist without the gamblers? Mm. Like they're so deeply embedded from, from my perspective anyway. Yeah. Okay. So preface this by saying I am not a scholar on gambling. So this is just my, you know, my understanding from right. being here for, for 11 years. Um, no, Muay Thai and gambling absolutely go together. Uh, trying okay. to separate the two would be like trying to unmake soup. It's just not possible. You can't like make your chicken noodle soup and then, oh, this guy's vegetarian. Let's take the chicken out. There's absolutely no way like Muay Thai and gambling go together and they probably always have like since it became a ring sport absolutely for sure there's always been gambling the degree of gambling the way it was during like the golden age versus the way it is now is different mostly because of tech like tech has really changed the way that people gamble so if you want to see the way that gambling kind of more organically and should be 
uh, involved in Muay Thai, you'll see that out in the provinces. And you'll see that in that people have small amounts of money, like everyone's betting. They're betting with like a hundred baht, which is three, three American dollars. They're like doing all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You'll see the bookies. They have sometimes these little like uh, LED lights, the little laser pointers. And so they'll be pointing at this fighter or that fighter in order to like take their take their bets and they have all these hand signals and um it gets really it gets really loud like one of the things that's so beautiful about gambling in Muay Thai in Thailand is that the crowd is so into it like if you've ever actually gone into one of these stadia or you've gone into these festival fights and how into it the crowd gets it's intoxicating it's like it's like if you go to a live music concert, you don't get that when the opening band is playing because nobody cares. <laughs> like, yeah. nobody, nobody came <laughs> to see them. But when, you know, like Tool comes out and people lose their minds, all of a sudden you're just in this experience that's completely different from listening to a CD. It's completely uh, being part of um, an energy that's beyond you. And it's beyond actually even what's happening on the stage because it's, all the people around you. Um, So that's where it gets a little bit complicated in Bangkok with like uh, people talk about corruption and gambling and things like this is that because now there's online gambling, like people don't have to be at the stadium in order to place their bets. So, um, you know, there's a hundred people in the stadium and 10,000 people betting on it and it's happening online. And it's all of these things are, are going off. The, the people who are actually watching the fight are not the people who are necessarily uh, pulling pulling the energies, right? They're not watching it and they have their money in it. Mm-hmm. So what happens there is that you have these really big head honchos. Um, they call them big legs in Thai. So a big leg is like a big bookie, like a big gambler. He's got like okay. a lot of weight to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to side yourself with him because you're like, he's got a lot of influence. So if he bets on blue, there's a lot of power saying that blue uh, will get favoritism if it's a very close fight. So people are like, I believe him rather than I believe literally the blue corner. So they're actually gambling on what the big gambler thinks rather than what's actually happening in the ring. And so you're getting this kind of like separation between what's happening in the ring and what's happening in gambling. And that's why it's becoming kind of too influential in the outcomes of some fights yeah i was just about to ask how can judging be done properly well in the golden age uh which was in like the 90s this is metis times so like the 90s mm-hmm. um there was some really messed up stuff happening People like to quote Samart because Samart's amazing. And he gave this interview where he was talking about how gambling is ruining Muay Thai. Gambling was very intense during his time. There were people being shot in Lumpany while fights were happening. There were people <laughs> being murdered. There were bombs going off. Like it was serious mafia stuff in the 90s. And you're going to tell me that gambling's out of control now. <laughs> These are yeah. not comparable. But in the 90s, the um, officials didn't they didn't have as much um they weren't afraid of the gamblers because they had a lot of power like they had a lot of authority for being officials in the stadium now the in the 90s the the gamblers that were important were really big they had like kingpins 
and you did not mess with them. A couple of them were murdered. <laughs> they don't, they're not around anymore. But when, when things started to change, you started, instead of having these kingpins, you started having much smaller, like more smaller people with influence. So anyone could be um, a big leg, right? Like people who were actually much less influential were getting more influence. And sure. so they started paying officials, paying fighters to throw fights, things like this, which was already happening in the 90s. But it became more so now because the officials didn't have as much, in Thai you call it, I'm not, they didn't have as much authority in and of themselves as they had before. And so this kind of like pull of who's who's got um, who's got authority, it got watered down between the two. And so now gamblers have more influence than they should. Wow. Sounds way more complicated than yeah that's why i say this is just not an yeah. authority <laughs> yeah all right so two more questions I, i'll try to keep it to these two then we can get you out of here one is going to be a selfish question on my part um mm -hmm. because i just had my acl surgery done on friday um for that in february i had a spine surgery so i had a laminectomy from a car accident so i've been kind of secluded from the world mm -hmm. for like this past year with just like back-to-back -back injuries i know fighters you guys go through a lot of injuries um especially knees um you know have what's your biggest injury that you've had to date and how did you not the physical aspect of it because no like that just comes but the mental aspect of not being able to train and do what you want to do um have you came across that scenario yet and what exactly did you do to get through it Okay, so um, I've been in Thailand fighting consistently for, for 11 years, and I've had many, many injuries. I've had mm -hmm. um, cuts, I've had abscesses, uh, broken hand, broken foot, broken nose four times, although most of those were from training. Um, and the thing about Muay Thai for me is that you can always train around things. So while my hand was broken, I was just throwing elbows. When my foot was broken, I actually switched stance. I was like doing all of these different things to be able to kind of like move around it and that kind of stuff. It was last year that I got my worst injury and it wasn't from Muay Thai. I got thrown from a horse into a cement fence oh. and just walked on my back like really <laughs> badly. So um, it was one of those things where like when, when I was thrown and I was on the ground and I kind of like realized that I was alive and trying to, I was trying to breathe and I just could not get that first intake mm -hmm. of air. And so when I finally started breathing, I was thinking to myself, can I move my legs or not? Like I was actually unsure whether I was paralyzed because I just, all I felt was a singular kind of, um, aura of pain there was no specific right. spot to it and so once I could kind of like move my foot I was feeling a little better where I'm like okay well I'm not paralyzed I can move different parts of my body and my uh my instructor helped me up and I ended up kind of like limping bringing the horse back to the stable I got on my motorbike and drove home about five minutes got off my bike and kind of like hobbled inside as best I could to take a shower and it was that thing where like when you've been in a car accident or something like this and you just kind of have this like adrenaline that allows you to walk away where you're like, oh, I'm kind of not that bad. Mm -hmm. And then a day later, you're like, 
in the hospital, can't move, this kind of thing. This is what happened to me. Um, as the day went on, I became more and more sure that I had maybe broken my pelvis. Um, and I stopped being able to move. <laughs> so for about two weeks, I couldn't walk at all. Um, and I was just laid out. So going from my injuries are such that I can train around them to I can't sit, I can't stand up, I can't do anything. Like I was just out for two yeah. weeks. Um, and slowly I started being able to kind of hobble through the house. I went in and I got some injections and an x-ray and nothing was broken. I was very lucky. My ligament was very, very badly bruised, but it wasn't torn. So it was just a time thing. And it took me about two months of very slowly just, you know, some days were just being able to kind of like stand for two minutes and see if I could kind of like twist my hips a little bit, like just very, very tiny incremental. I started being able to like walk outside the house at about three weeks and I could like walk a hundred paces up and down from right. my house. And so after two months, I got back to training and it was this thing where it was like, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to do any of the things that I was doing. Like, I don't know where my limits are. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of a, a process of like testing this. Okay. That works. This works. I can't do that. And kind of like being very cautious around the edges, but something that I was advised from, um, a movement coach. So she, she has a, a human movement, um, program that she does. She said, it's good to find the pain. She's like, when you find the pain, test its limits, because that will tell you where, where your actual problems are. So instead of, I can't move this way because it hurts. So I'm going to stay over here like a cast, you kind of like lean into and push just on the edge of where that pain is to like find how to recalibrate your body and kind of like lean into it. And so I was doing this consistently for probably three months once I could move wow. again. Yeah. And then six months after that injury, I, were, I won the WBC world championship minimum weight title. So it was like from laid out to world champion in six months. And then uh, about a month after that fight, I broke the bottom of my foot again. So now I'm on my way to like uh, working my way back to being able to kind of yeah. like run and, and do normal stuff again. So I had two really intense injuries within a year that um, really made me realize that there is no like, I'll just ignore that. It's a, you actually have to restructure your body. Like you have to relearn to walk. You have to relearn to do everything. Mm -hmm. But what's cool about it is that when you're a beginner, you don't know anything. And so you're going from nothing to something. And it's this kind of like big growth moment. And then you plateau and you kind of like are constantly on this like slow, slow growth program. When you know a bunch of stuff, because you have all this experience and you get thrown back into the kiddie pool and you have to start over, you get to be a beginner with all the knowledge that you have from all the experience that you have. And it completely changes the way that you're able to rebuild your body when you have knowledge at the same time as being a beginner. I've honestly never thought of it that way. And I've had, cool, man. <laughs> yeah. And I've had to, I've like in the past four years, I've had to rebuild literally from like being able to walk and do pushups three times. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just not being able to have control of my body. So that rebuilding process is, it, it fucks with you mentally. Um, yes. You know, 
And so that's that's kind of where I wanted to see, you know, if I was the only one, clearly I'm not. Um, and so I had the one the one final question for you, then we'll get you out of here. Um, you are chasing down this huge number of fights that we've talked about, 472, 474, mm. somewhere around there. Unless they find more fights of this guy. Yeah. yeah. What do you have a laid out plan for this? Um, do you have so many fights that you want to get per year? Do you know when you want to get this goal done by? Um, or is this just like, I don't give a shit. I'm running towards it. Whatever happens, happens. It's a little bit of both because um, for the first like six years, I was fighting really, really steadily. I was getting like 36 fights a year for, um, for a couple of years there. So my first hundred happened really fast. And then once I got to a hundred, I was like, fuck it, 200. Like, let's just keep pushing. Yeah. And, uh, for the past, since COVID, COVID really messed up Muay Thai in Thailand. I think I got two fights during all mm. of, during all of COVID. Um, and now it's really hard for me to find opponents. So my rate has slowed down significantly. So before when I was chasing 471 and my rate was really good, like I was fighting, <clears throat> you know, at least two or three times a month, it was like, okay, it'll take me, you know, uh, five years to do this or something. Mm -hmm. But now my rate has slowed down so significantly that even if I can pick it back up and get two fights a year, it's going to take me like 10 years to, to get back or to get up to that point. Cause I still have like to almost 200 fights to go um so a little bit of it is like crunching the math like just figuring out how many i need to get in order for it to fit within a timeline that's realistic for my age and you know how long my body will last and how long i can fight mm -hmm. but there's also a part of me that's like i'm just going to do it until it's done like if i'm fighting in my 50s i'll be fighting in my 50s <laughs> it's just that's just how it goes so it's um it's basically trying to to you know fix the boat while you're in it kind of thing because yeah. you never know what's going to come up and you're just constantly adjusting. Yeah, no, I like that. I I love your mindset. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I've always enjoyed people that they want to do something other people don't. You know, mm. to kind of set themselves apart, and you've clearly done that. Um, wish you nothing but the best of luck in your climb to. Thank you. This outrageous number of fights i just don't even know how many times that is getting punched in the face it's probably a lot <laughs> <laughs> um but no seriously thank you for coming on uh kind of sharing your story uh, your experience where can everybody find you on social media for your fight updates and to kind of see how you're doing and and what's going on in the life of sylvie uh, so I'm actually super easy to find because uh, if you just spell my name correctly, Sylvie, S-Y-L-V-I-E, and put Muay Thai with it, you will find me on Google. I'm all over the place because I've been blogging for so long. Um, but if you want updates, usually on Facebook or Twitter, we'll, we'll have my uh, fight updates and stuff like that. I'm active on Instagram and people who want to see what my project in preserving Muay Thai and the Muay Thai legacy, uh, including your teacher, Meti. Um, that's the patron at uh, Sylvie Moy is what my patron is called. And it's the Muay Thai library. So it's basically preserving uh, the the art of Muay Thai and all its different varieties in Thailand. Yeah, I, uh, I was like doing the research and I like went through and saw that. That's definitely something I'm signing up for. The Just the names, uh, 
that you have it's almost like having like a a library of legends that you can just learn from from watching over and over and over again and, and you don't really get that with a lot of different sports so for you to be able to put that together and put that out that that's simply amazing um so yeah definitely keep going with that um good luck Thank on you. your fights Thank and you. uh yeah I, I think that's gonna be it for today i know you're extremely busy and tired so Go ahead and get you out of here and uh, enjoy the rest of your night. But thank you very thank much you. for coming on. I enjoyed my time. Thank you. All right. Take it easy. <laughs>